Father, we're thankful for this church and this congregation. We're thankful for all the blessings of life that you bestow upon us. Father, we're mindful of our sick, and we ask that you be with them, that you watch over and care for them, that you tend to their various illnesses, and that you help and guide their caregivers. Father, we ask that you forgive us of our sins. We know that we're flawed beings, and Father, we pray that you help spark in us the humility and the desire to come to you and ask for forgiveness. Father, we're thankful of Brother Terrence. We ask that you be with him and help him to have a ready recollection of the lesson that he has prepared for us tonight. We ask that you go with us once our time here is done, that you see us home safely. And Father, we're most especially thankful for your son, for his willingness to hang upon that cruel cross and pay the debt that mankind's sins have caused. Father, we ask that you find everything we do here done in a matter of spirit and truth and help us to apply it to our lives so that we might be more mature Christians and have a positive impact on the world around us. These things we humbly pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Maybe help get us minds settled and everything here as we begin. So we've been studying Colossians for several weeks, and I mentioned last week that we were going to wrap up our study by the end of the year. And uh, we'll be sticking to that, uh, but we might only get through uh, not quite all of chapter 3 tonight. But if that is the case, we'll spend... uh, we're going to at least get through verses 12 through 17. We might get the rest of the chapter. We might not. Um, worst case, we just spend one week on all of chapter 4, which will be relatively easy given the uh, content matter that it covers. So last week, we got through about verse 10 or 11 of Colossians chapter 3. And we talked about how verses 1 through 4, they kind of set the transition between what he's been talking about in Colossians 2 and sort of transitions us to what he's going to talk about in chapter 3. Because in chapter 2, we talked about how they were entrapped in some of these rituals and some of these false teachings that had blended in and had been affecting them and sort of persuading them that these other things were necessary uh, were necessary in addition to the gospel to be saved or to be correctly living as Christians. And Paul says, no, 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 that is certainly not the case. And that's why he says, you know, if you were raised with Christ, if you're in Christ, if you're setting your mind on things in Christ, and when Christ was our, like we see everything constantly going back to Jesus as he begins chapter 3, much like he did in chapter 1, just kind of calling back to all of those ideas. And so in 5 through 11, as we talked about last week, he says, Put to death this, 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 this. Put off this, 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 this. And he lays out this conduct that really that if once you've been saved, once you are in Christ, once you've uh, been buried with him and raised with him, as he says, this is how you should act. And so this is not instruction that says, you know, you have to do this to be a Christian. It's more of the opposite. It's if you're a Christian, you should do this. And what we're studying tonight is really a continuation of a lot of those same ideas. And uh, we, we, we didn't quite touch on verse 11, but the, the gist of verse 11 is really that there's, you know, that God, I think is the, the King James says in, uh, I can't remember the verse, but, you know, that God is not a respecter of persons, that God does not make a difference whether you're Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're a barbarian or a Scythian, whether you're a slave or you're free, uh, all can be in Christ. And I think the, the condition kind of attached to that is the context of this whole chapter, that you know, those who are in Christ are those who live according to these ways, not 
not those who follow the physical rituals of the Jews, or not those who observe the Sabbath or the new moon, or not those who are circumcised as those uh, would claim, but it's, it's those who are in Christ or who obey Christ. Those are the ones who are uh, God's. Those are really the ones who are God's people. Which brings us to the perhaps controversial verse 12. Um, so someone go ahead and read for us verse 12 and 13 of Colossians chapter 3. So, you'll notice he says, put on, which is really in contrast to what he was saying earlier. He said, you know, put off this, 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 put off this. And he's going to say here, put on all these things. An illustration I heard somebody use is that as I'm filling up my gas tank with gas, it's being filled up with gas and it forces the air out. That the, that the more we act this way, the more we will find ourselves not acting these other ways. That we should, you know, be empty ourselves of these other ways and be filled up with these, these traits that Paul lists here. He also uses this interesting phrase, uh, the elect of God, depending on your translation. And so I want to take just a, a second here to kind of talk about this um, and to maybe have a little bit of discussion on sort of a, a broader principle in terms of biblical interpretation, if that makes sense. Um, because there are certainly there is certainly the idea... That stems from this text as well as others, uh, that God chooses some people and he doesn't choose other people. Maybe you've heard of that before. That's crossed, you've crossed paths with that before. Um, sometimes it's called determinism. Sometimes it's called Calvinism. It has a lot of different names. Um, and, and one way to read this certainly is that some are elected by God to put on these qualities and some are not. And so there is kind of a question of, so if I'm... Faced with two ways to read or understand a verse, how do I know which is correct? And I'll kind of ask that to you guys to see where you go with this. But if I'm faced with two ways to understand a verse, how, how might I figure out which is maybe the more correct way to read it? Look at the context of the verses before and afterwards. Context, always good. I mean, and, you know, immediate context, broader context. Are we reading the Gospels? Are we reading the letter? Are we reading the Psalms? Are we, so in terms of the book that it's in, certainly know that, but also know this is why I like studies like we're doing, right? Because we can't talk about Colossians 12 without remembering, hey, remember what we talked about in 1 through 11? Remember what we talked about back in chapter 2, back in chapter 1? Um, context certainly helps. More complex passages have to agree simpler passages and so because God's not the author of confusion and so um, if you have a complex passage you look back to where the Bible says but the Bible is its own best commentary and you look to see what it, what simpler passages that are easier to understand say to, to get guidance on the more complex passages yes so you, you bring up kind of the direction I was thinking and I've I've heard all of those before and you may have heard those as well that when you're doing a study that you know those ideas that the Bible is its own best commentary or that the, you have to let scripture interpret itself uh, of course it's in uh, I know we read it in our study of second Peter but that scripture is not up to interpretation or one man's interpretation but it's the inspired word of God um, I have a few verses I want us to look at 
and then maybe we can decide what exactly Paul is meaning by this phrase, the elect of God. Because like I said, this is, this is no small teaching. Um, this is, a, I would say, one of the bigger ideas out there um, that in broader Christendom of people who believe this idea that God chooses some and not others. So let's look at a few verses, and maybe we can determine which way we want to go with this. Someone read for us John 3.17. Probably all know John three sixteen, but someone read for us John three seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Okay, so why did God send His Son? Well, God sent His Son for the world to be saved. Okay, uh, someone read for us First Timothy two verse three and four. Okay, so he says this is good and acceptable. He will, he desires all men to what was the be saved and, and come to him. Okay, well, what about the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament say about this idea? Um, someone uh, read for me Ezekiel eighteen verse twenty three. When you get there, I'm going to have you read a couple of verses. But Ezekiel eighteen verse twenty three. Let me turn there so I can make sure I know all these. But So take that and then also skip down and read verse 32 of Ezekiel 18 as well. So... Verse 23, do I take any pleasure that the wicked should die? Of course not. Verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Turn and live. Flip over, and if you wouldn't mind reading one more for us, read, go to chapter 33 and read Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 33, 11. So, um, if you haven't gotten the idea, I could probably pick many, many more verses, and we could do this for about another half hour. In light of other scriptures that we might know, and even ones that we've read or not read, does it make sense to say that God chooses some to be saved and some to be condemned? How can that be in line with many, many other passages in the Bible? I mean, God in the Old Testament, God in the New Testament, God through Jesus, God through the apostles. So, but we have somewhat of a, I would say, a problem in the sense that, but if we're reading this, and we're reading this in our English, whether it's King James, ESV, uh, NIV, he uses this phrase, the elect or the chosen of God. And this is where I would caution people, and the reason these ideas exist is what I would, I would say reading something too literally. And you might say, well, how can I read the Bible too literally? The Bible is God's word. Well, the Bible is God's word. Um, 
but it's not written in English, so we can start there. <laughs> uh, despite what some may tell you, God did not uh, come to King James and ordain his message through the mouth of him into the tongue you and I speak. So for starters, understand we're at least that, if nothing else, we're at least that bit removed from what the text originally said. And then on top of that, if, if you are familiar at all, both in the Old Testament and the New, there are expressions, there are idioms, there are turns of phrase that kind of have meanings that were slightly different to the Greeks that might be different to us. And if you look at how Paul uses this word, the elect of God, it is not, as you and I might tend to read it or want to read it, it is not this idea that God chooses some or others. It's, for starters, it's closer to that of those called by God. But even then, really the onus is on those who answer the call, if that makes sense. Yes. And he means for us to turn or we will die. Exactly. And so I think where this idea comes from is that there is this passage, and, and actually Paul uses it, this phrase kind of a lot in First and Second Thessalonians, that he uses this phrase, either God's chosen or the elect of God. And some people kind of ask themselves, well, what does this mean? Well, maybe God chooses some and not others. And I just, I can see how you could get that if we just read Colossians 3.12. The problem is, Paul didn't even just write Colossians 3.12. Paul wrote Colossians. And then we came back and said, well, there's chapter 1 and there's chapter 2, and here's verse 1 and here's verse 12. Even not just looking at other verses, but if we do, as Michael mentioned, we go back and look at the context of this. What is all of Colossians 3 about? It's about how you should live as a Christian. So how does that make any sense if what Paul's saying in verse 4 is that God just chooses some and not others? The rest of Colossians doesn't even make sense to read it that way. Because if God just chooses some and not others, well, then how I live doesn't matter. So, so if you look at both, if, if you interpret it in light of other scriptures, as we kind of talked about, and if you look at the context of the verse, as was also mentioned, that understanding of it really just does not hold water. It, it doesn't make logical sense in the context of the letter. It doesn't make sense in looked at in other scriptures, other inspired messages from God. So we know that it is not within God's nature to choose some to be saved and to choose some to be condemned. And like I said, I, I read four or five verses, but we could look at a million of them. So that, that we go back to this question, so what did he mean by it? If you, if you look at the, the original terminology, it is closer to this idea where the onus of choosing or answering the call is really on those who, who choose to be God's people. Um, does that, does at least that makes sense in terms of saying what it is but what I kind of first want us to understand is not necessarily just what I say this verse is but if you ever come across a verse that someone tells you something and you feel like well, that's troubling or I'm not sure what to do with that you know as we talk about all the time don't let your question kind of just remain unanswered, but study that. Pursue that idea. Look into, well, what do other scriptures say about this topic? What do other translations say from this scripture? Um, it, it's just very dangerous, and I've seen this happen many, many times. I've seen many people you know, create an entire doctrine out of whole cloth because of one translation of one verse that they found that they were like, oh, well, surely that means God does this. Like, as Van mentioned for us, God tells us he's not an author of confusion. And if all of the Bible is inspired, look at what the rest of the Bible has to say on that. And that should really, 
I don't want to say too blanket of a statement, but you will find that will clear up a lot more interpretive issues than it will solve. Um, does that make sense? If Paul stood up here today in front of us right now and said, you are to the elect of God, who would he be talking to? He'd be talking to Christians. All right. There you have it. There's no, there's no problem there. And you're, and you're right. That's, and that's where I say the problem is not in the text. The problem is when we read the text, we kind of... A lot of times I think what it is is we read into it the ideas we have when we would say that. Well, what would I mean if I said that? Well, I would mean this. Well, that's great. Uh, you're not Paul. <laughs> and, you know, you and Paul didn't even speak the same language. So um, don't create – and that's a great point. Don't create a problem where there's not one because truthfully, even in a vacuum, if he says the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, there's nothing even wrong with that statement. But I think what people do is they say, whoa, 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 hold on. Well, if some people are elected by God and some people are not elected by God, then that means God chooses some people and God doesn't choose some people. Except the problem with that is you don't ever find Paul using this sixth phrase. Those of you who are not chosen by God, you're all going to hell. He doesn't even use that. So you're right. Even in the context of just this one verse, that phrase as Paul uses it is not problematic at all. But it's Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that, that is from the context of that verse immediately and in the broader sense of the letter. That is so obviously what he means. But I just I, I wanted to take a minute to kind of talk about the dangers of uh, misinterpreting Scripture in general, if that makes sense. Because I would say one of the one of the biggest false teachings that we deal with on a daily basis is probably going to be any kind of doctrine based on faith alone. But the other is probably this idea, and these are very closely tied ideas, that God chooses some to be saved and he chooses others not to be saved. The, the idea there, Louise touched on this, but you know, you use the principle of going back and seeing what the Bible says. You know, and, and it, there's multiple passages, but Hebrews 4 9 was one that popped up the first. But, you know, there, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Mm. So that verse tells you that there is a people of God. You take that and compare it to the elect, you know, and we studied in, uh, in Philippians about God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose was to have a bride for his son, a body for his son, a house for him, and <laughs> a people. God has a people. In the old days, it was under the Old Testament, it was the children of Israel for the purpose of bringing forth Christ. And then once Christ died on the cross, and that cross in the church was established and was born on the day of Pentecost, then God's people were Christians. And so the elect are Christians, those who, what Louise was talking about, choose to obey. Because predestination is a damnable doctrine. And also, Tell me, tell me what sense it makes all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God would send his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, but yet still pick and choose right. who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Right. It, the, the, they don't, those two don't correlate. <laughs> so God has a people. And, and in the last days in the Christian era, we, the Christians are it. And that is the only. Which you, you bring up a great point, and this is what I think Paul means when he uses this term. Um, 
that under the old law, yes, don't get me wrong, under the old law, that's how it was. <laughs> if you were an Israelite, you were God's people. If you were not, you were a lost heathen, forsaken by God. Um, but almost every single letter Paul pens in the New Testament fights this idea and actually is trying to convince the Jews that no, it is not your Jewishness that saves you. It's your faith in God that saves you. It's your obedience to God that saves you. And like this under this undertone is in every single one of his letters from Romans all the way through the prison epistles later in his life. And so we see that over and over in his teaching. And funnily enough, if we look at verse 12, the, even the phrase, the elect of God, which people would get hung up on, if you just go read verse 11, verse 11 was just telling us that no, anyone can be the elect of God. They are those who obey his command. Like that's, that's the, really the point of verse 11. He says, well, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, slave nor free, Christ. Like that was the whole point of the concluding argument he was just making. Um, but you'll see Paul apply terms like where he, he'll actually do a lot of things where he calls the church Israel, or he's the spiritual Israel, the spiritual children of God. And, and he's trying to kind of get, talk to the Jewish people with their terminology and try and get them to see that like God has a people just like he did in the old law, but now what makes him, what makes people God's people is obedience and all of these things that Paul is listing. So any other questions just on kind of what we're laying out and the principles of biblical interpretation. Because I just, uh, as Van, yeah, you gotta, you gotta let the simpler ideas interpret the more complex ideas. Because if you, if you let someone sort of get you off on a specific reading of one verse, I mean, you could, you could take one verse and come up with all sorts of teachings, whatever you want, if you ignore the rest of the Bible. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and that's where I think sometimes the, the chapter verse thing does us a disservice. I mean, obviously, when the Bible was like first translated, there would be like one for an entire region of the country. You know, they, they would do this for reference because it made it easier as people started getting their own Bibles. He was like, oh, where does he say it? Well, instead of saying it on, on line 767 of scroll 8, you know, they said, oh, well, we're making chapters and verses. But I think that almost tricks our brain into thinking that, like, I can grab one verse and run with it. I remember what we talked about at the very beginning. This is a letter. How many of you who have written, I mean, it's Christmas card writing season. How many of you would write a three-page letter to someone in your family that's near and dear to you and have them take away one sentence from it? Or in fact, how many of you have been in a very long text conversation with somebody where you said about eight things and they respond to one of them? <laughs> it's like, it's like 20 minutes type of that out. Say, but what about the rest of what I said? You missed the point, right? So, so don't do that with, with God's word either. So anyway. And typically you'll find it's not everybody is doing it maliciously or from a bad heart, but it's almost always to justify something else. It's never to make the same point Paul is making. It's almost always to justify some other kind of doctrine or teaching. Um, anyway. Yeah, it, it's right along with that, exactly. So let, let's get in. If those are all the things he's not talking about. Let's get into what Paul's actually talking about here. So he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. We'll start, pause there. So he, you'll notice all of these are like the exact opposite of all those things he was just saying in the section we read last week. 
That is certainly by design. Um, so compassion, mercy, you know, this is really hurting with those who hurt, understanding those who hurt. I'm sure you've heard it, you know, rejoice, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Christians are supposed to be a compassionate, a merciful people. He, um, he says kindness. Kindness is pretty straightforward. It's the desire to be kind, to do good. It's the opposite of malice, which was mentioned in the last section. If someone, turn to Philippians 2. Turn to Philippians 2 and someone read first verse 3 and 4. But we could really read all of Philippians 2 on this topic. But someone read for us Philippians 2 verse 3 and 4. So I have us read this, not just because of the kindness and compassion, but also because this, this really fits right with what he's also going to say, the next trait, which is humility. Just like in Philippians, you'll notice he's talking about consolation in Christ or comfort in Christ and fellowship in Christ. And he's saying if you want fellowship in Christ, be like-minded, be of one accord, be of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness esteem others better than yourself. In the same way, he says, be compassionate, be tender, be merciful, be kind, be humble. In humility, you might remember last time we talked about this, we kind of talked a little bit about how so many of those vice lists from earlier in Colossians, so many of those vices and sins really stem from pride. They, they stem from this idea that I know better for myself than God does. I, I know what I want to do or I want to pursue what I want more than I want to pursue what God wants, God wants for me. And how so many of that comes from pride. Well, humility, not only is humility the opposite of pride, um, I want to be careful here because humility is not just having low self-esteem. Humility is not thinking I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm, I'm a nobody, or, or being harder on yourself than necessary. But humility is viewing yourself honestly in light of who God is. It's not about seeing yourself as less than other people or worthless compared to other people or useless compared to other people or just being hard on yourself, but Humility is, I think, being honest about yourself in light of who God is. Um, in Romans 12, 3 speaks to this. Someone read for us Romans 12, verse 3. So especially because we've just been talking about the importance of context, I want to take for a second, even looking at the context of Romans 12. How many times have we read verses 1 and 2 where it says, you know, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by uh, the renewal of your mind, that we may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Just like in Colossians, he says, this is how you ought to think, this is how you ought to be. And in verse 3 of Romans 12, he says, and if you want to be that way, do this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly or with sober judgment. And it says this expression that God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, that you know, you, we are all bringing something to the table. We all contribute with our own faith. And if you read verse 4 of Romans 12, he actually 
from four onward, he goes on to talk about like unity in the body and fellowship in the body. And so many times where these qualities are mentioned in the Bible in terms of how we should treat one another with kindness, with humbleness, with meekness, with patience, quite often it's mentioned really in the context of fellowship, in the context of unity, in the context of being one church, you know, of being one body. And the same is true in Romans 12, it was true in Philippians 2, and it's true here in Colossians 3. And so it's, if I understand Romans 12, 3 correctly, it's this idea that it's, it's okay to have strengths and weaknesses because we are a body. You know, we're, we're, we're not called to be lone wolves. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people I've, I've had conversations with, and I think this is incredibly common for my generation, unfortunately, where they'll say, well, I believe in God and I believe in the Bible, but I'm just not a church person. I'm just like... I don't even think you believe that's true. How many of us, if you go to the gym, you have a workout partner? Or how many of us, if you're trying to tackle some project at work, you're probably on a team? Um, and I get that those are illustrations that almost really fail in comparison to the real thing, which is how God calls us to be a body. But like he, even in the Old Testament, as Van mentioned, we were having a conversation of interpretation earlier. God had a people. Like he didn't... He didn't even when he called people to go into other countries and to be missionaries or to be ministers to other nations, there was always a relationship with kind of like a base of operations, if you will. God never just sends somebody off and says, hey, you're on your own. Go live as a Christian and convert that whole nation over there by yourself the rest of your life. <laughs> like, a man is never an island for God. And so I, I hate it when people tell me that because one, it almost always means they used to be a part of a church or a, a congregation, and they were hurt by it somehow. And that just always kind of breaks your heart a little bit. But now they have this mentality that we're like, well, I'm better off being a Christian by myself than I am in a group. Okay, tell me in any sense how that's true. Like just from any logical perspective, how is, I mean, all of us have been in places in our life where something happens and you're like, oh, I, I gotta talk to somebody about this. I gotta call somebody, whether that's a parent or it's a family member or it's a child or it's a friend or it's a coworker. It's, I mean, it's, how many times do you hear this kind of equation? You're like, don't bottle things up. Why? Because it's horrible for you. <laughs> Imagine if Christians, if we were called to be lone wolves, how much harder our journeys would be. But that's not how God calls us to be. And the reason he calls us into one fellowship is so that we can bear one another's burdens, is so that we can lift one another up. Um, and, and if we are to successfully do that, that's where sections like this part of Colossians really, really come into play. Because if... I imagine, if I was guessing, most of the people that I've, at least that I've talked to, it seems mostly are people who are from here, have mostly been here. But if you've ever been a part of another congregation, or if you've ever been in a congregation that just it didn't feel good, like it, it didn't really feel like they were one body, it didn't really feel like they were, they probably were not people, like at some point, kind of like how I mentioned, to make a callback, how I mentioned I've talked to people who are like, well, I'm not a church person. They'll use that phrase. That's almost always because at one point in time, someone was not kind to them, someone was not meek to them, and someone was not long-suffering with them. If you're familiar with the expression that, you know, hurt people hurt people, very often those people who've been cast off by a, a congregation or a, a particular fellowship are often people who feel like they've been treated poorly by them. <laughs> so if you think of these qualities he calls us to do, it's not just... It's not just so that we can sit here and feel good about our moral uprightness. 
It's so that we can successfully be who he calls us to be. And that's why if you look, I mean, all, all of these qualities are interpersonal in nature. Every single one has to do with how we treat one another. I mean, I can't be kind or merciful to a wall. <laughs> I can't be humble in my car. <laughs> Joseph gave a lesson a few weeks ago when he was here. My friend Joseph Lewis, he guest spoke. I was supposed to be at, C- at the M2Y, but then I was here, and it was, uh, we were both here. Anyway, I, the point of his lesson was how relational God is. And I think about that all the time. And one of the, one of the defining aspects of Christians, and I have like 17 verses I wanted to look at about this, but is where it says, you shall know you are Christians because of your love for one another. Right? I mean, we can find that at least six times in Scripture that I counted like today. But how often is that not true? Like if you, and this is where I, I kind of wanted to talk about this for a little bit, but I don't want to spend too much time on it just because we, you know, I want to get through this. But if you look at, if you look at the unfortunate decline in uh, people who belong to any congregation, and I mean even, I'm just talking not just in what people we would consider Christians, but in people of all faiths really, but especially within Christianity, a broader, what I call Christendom, which I would include everybody who calls themselves a Christian, conversation on that another time, but all different denominations, all different churches, almost all of them are seeing decline. And I think if you ask and look at why, it's because there are a lot of people out there who've been hurt by churches. There's a lot of people who've been hurt by Christians. There's a lot of people who've been hurt by people who said, I believe in God and I love God and I don't like you. (laughs) And I think if we were always verse 12 and 13 of Colossians 3, churches would be exploding in popularity. Like We we, we wouldn't be able to keep people in the building. We'd be standing room only every week. (laughs) And the, but the unfortunate reality is that for and I don't don't get me wrong I I understand that people make choices and sometimes people want to live in a way that's not in accordance with the truth and this is a complicated issue that we're not going to address in ten minutes. However, just taking what the text says here, I think if we do all of these things and are insistent and consistent on doing these things, you will be shocked at how we can change the reputation of even just like our one small congregation. I mean, we're in a small town. How important is your reputation in a small town, right? We drove by uh, Barrett's, the tire shop in town the other day, and something I kind of enjoy about small towns versus the city is like, if you're not a good mechanic shop, you don't stay in business in a tiny town because <laughs> nobody goes to you. In the city, you can get transient people and travelers and people passing through, but like in a small town, you don't stay in business if you don't treat people well. We also kind of have a lot of congregations that have struggled, quote-unquote, to stay in business. And I think that's because we might need to... It's easy to sit back and say, well, people just don't want to do the right thing. Well, that's probably true. But I don't think that's ever not been true. (laughs) Don't we have half of the Bible because people didn't want to do the right thing, so we got to write a letter to them and tell them why they're not doing the right thing? And so I think if we take this stuff seriously, I think we'll be surprised at how our fellowship will improve, and how our growth would really improve. Um, we have a lot of people, uh, too, that uh, want to use the for me excuse. Uh, and they will go someplace else. True. Until they find fault in that, and then they will go someplace else. Mm-hmm. And you're hunting for an excuse just to leave 
are not even with him. And when a person, you know, the way I feel about it, if a person leaves a congregation to go somewhere else, it, it's like they didn't want to worship with me, and I, I don't know why. <laughs> and, uh, but there's a lot of people that want to use that for me concept. That's uh, true. Concept. And, you know, oh, I got three guitars. Yeah, no, that's true. Definitely. And and that is certainly true. I'll, I'll give you kind of an illustration just from uh, maybe the business world, whatever you want to call it, retail, I guess. Um, for a long time before I ever did this, I was the manager of like a Panera in a college town. And like every other industry nowadays, we were evaluated by our reviews and by the customer experience surveys we put out and blah, blah, blah. I can't tell you how many times I sat in on one of these customer experience meetings and my boss is like, well, why are your sales so down? Because all your reviews are not very good. I'm like, well, there's some people who are just jerks who just show up and they don't like anything they did right and nothing we did was correct and nothing. We... And he's like, okay, yeah, but do you think jerks are only in Stillwater, Oklahoma? <laughs> like, do you think jerks are only affecting your store and not every other store? And basically what he was like, he's like, yeah, but that's kind of an excuse. And so what he, and I think sometimes I don't. I normally don't advocate for adopting a business practice for the church. So this is this is not a general rule. But I do think sometimes, if, if we listen to the feedback surveys a little bit more when people left or when people don't want to come, they usually will tell us the truth. Um, and so sometimes it it's easy to say, well, everybody left because they just don't want to be a good Christian. Okay, some people might have left because they don't want to be a good Christian or they don't want to hear the truth. And that certainly happens. But sometimes we also need to look inwardly and say, you know, well, maybe, maybe we could be better in certain ways. Um, it's kind of the old adage that I told somebody. Every sweet old lady in every congregation across America thinks their church is friendly. Say something. Sure. First thing we have to do, if we come to work with God, we got to get rid of bitterness among one another, or we cannot worship God if we don't love our brothers. Sure, but when we get down to a situation where one drives a civil aid and another drives a forward, we hold it against each other. Now, I've seen people that As way. we should. Yeah. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Arguments over things like that. I don't agree with Van Hearns a lot of times, but I love his preaching, and I love him. No, you're I right. I work on it, but I love him. One of the verses I actually had that I wanted to get to is Matthew 5, 23, 24. And we don't have time to like go read it. You can take note of it. But it says if you have a quarrel with your brother, don't go to the altar. It says go settle things with your brother and then bring your gift to the altar. That's exactly what you're talking about. If you come to worship you've got a problem with somebody, uh, to put it in plain terms, take it outside, right? <laughs> go settle it and then come be the church. Um, but everybody that comes in here to worship are brothers and sisters. That's like being an yeah. What if I had bitterness between my sister and brother and sister all my life? I believe now. I don't like this And, and, and like people do. Church. Yeah. And that's, that's not right. We can't worship God if we don't love our brothers and sisters. Yeah. We, can't. we have to put the bitterness away and make it pay go. Yeah. And We're I, not going to agree on everything that's done out here every day. We're going to right. drive different cars. We're going to hopefully marry different women. You know what Mike was talking about, what you were talking about with customer reviews at Panera? I read this somewhere. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put 
on tender mercies, kindness, humility, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you. And that works on both sides of the aisle. Right. That works right. for those that works for those leaving the bad review, that works for those <laughs> receiving the yeah. bad review. Yeah. And if we all come together and we have those mercies and that patience and that meekness and humility and kindness, then a lot of our problems fall down and, and we can actually focus on the crux of the issue yeah. instead of letting our feelings and our emotions. And Which is, I mean, we didn't get to this verse, but if you look at verse 15 of that section, it says, and the peace of God will in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. And, and it goes on talking, of course, 316, which we probably know pretty well, you know, teaching and admonishing one another. But it, even verse 15, how I said, when we looked at Romans 12 and we looked at Philippians 2, they're always with this idea of fellowship. Same thing here. So it, it's always towards that direction of being, being the body of Christ, of being uh, a successful, you know, spiritual family. So... Um, I know we spent a lot of time on just 12 and 13, but really that's that, that was kind of a major teaching from this section anyway. Um, because it goes on to say, above all things love, and I had a handful of verses I wanted us to look at on that, but you know, John 13, 35, 1 John 3, 14, 2 John 1, 5, all talk about this idea that it, you will know, the world will know you are Christians by the love you have for one another. And I just... It, kind of a closing thought as we wrap up here is that and I say this all the time because I think it's an important way to kind of think about it if we went into our communities into our towns into our neighborhoods to our actual neighbors and we said what do you think of when you think of the Dover Church of Christ what would they say and how many things would they list before they got to love <laughs> it, it's kind of a joke but we like to think like oh hopefully the CS is loving and kind and great people and I hope that's true I, I really do, because that's, that's how it should be. Um. I was in tears saying garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> yeah. I think you're buying garbage in here, you're going to take garbage out. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. Um. I didn't get anything out of service. What were you supposed to get out of it? What did you put in it? Yeah. And, and you bring him a great point, tying it back to worship, because that's really what Paul kind of does in verse 16. You know, he says, well, how, what do we do that for? Well, it, you also do, well, you teach and admonish one another. You build each other up through the word. You build each other up through singing. You build each other up through worship. So, uh, thank you guys Thanks for being here. Thanks for your input. We'll, uh, we'll begin to wrap up Colossians uh, next week or the week after, I believe. Yeah, two weeks. Two more weeks. Oh, you got it here. <coughs>